0: Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you'd make us attentive to your voice. I pray, O God, that you would enable me to speak your word with clarity and boldness. And I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart might be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, you are our strength and our redeemer. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. So if you're joining us for the first time today, we have been in a series over the last couple months, really, in a a letter that the Apostle Paul who was one of Jesus' followers, wrote to a small gathering of believers in the first century city of Colossae. And so we've been kind of walking through this letter phrase by phrase. It is a, a letter that is rich in uh, theology and ethics and every all things that have to do with Jesus and his death and resurrection. And so we've been taking our time kind of walking very slowly through each uh, kind of phrase each verse and unpacking it. And tonight uh, we're gonna spend another week looking together at the cross of Christ. And so if you were with us a couple weeks ago, we began talking about the cross and we looked at the cross from the angle of uh, the cross as blood sacrifice. And we talked about what that means. And then last week, we talked together about how in the cross, God has substituted himself in our place and for our sakes so that we might be cleansed and redeemed from our sin. And tonight, we're going to be looking at the cross from one more angle. Uh, We're going to be looking at the metaphor of the battlefield and how in the cross of Christ, God was doing battle Against the powers of darkness. and I want to draw your attention to Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, and what it says there. So in context, uh, Paul has just said that God has made us alive in Christ, who were dead in our trespasses. How has he done that? By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then as if reaching his crescendo on his teaching on the cross, he says this. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He says that on the cross, God has triumphed over the rulers and authorities that were triumphed over the rulers and the authorities, it's actually drawing upon uh, some language that in the first century would have been used to announce a victory of a great battle. So in the ancient world, you know, they didn't have uh, uh, mass media. And so if you wanted to communicate to everybody that you just won your last battle and you were a great general, you would come back into the city with a great parade and all of your vanquished enemies would be in a train behind you kind of, you know, in their ropes or whatever, you know, and the, the 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 victorious army would march in, you know, with the shamed prisoners behind them. And it's what, what Paul is saying here is that in the cross, God has acted as a great general in Jesus Christ, and he achieved a great victory over his enemies, and he brought them back in, uh, in a great train behind him, as it were, kind of exposing their shame. But who were the great enemies that God worked a victory over? And look what it says in the text. It names them as rulers and authorities. It says that God exacted this victory over the rulers and the authorities. In some of your Bibles, it says the principalities and the powers. Now, this is interesting because oftentimes when we think about the cross, we think about two parties at play in the drama of redemption. There is God, the creator of all things, and then there is humanity, enslaved and broken and guilty in our sin, and God acts to reconcile humanity to himself. But it's interesting in this text, there is a third actor in the drama of redemption, Not just God and humanity, but here he talks about the rulers and the authorities or the principalities and powers. And so I want to talk to you together about what this phrase means and what this is all about. What is God's victory over the rulers and authorities all about? And I want to talk to you about this underneath three headings. Number one, we're going to ask the question who are the rulers and authorities? Who are these principalities and powers? Secondly, how does the cross achieve a great victory over them? And then thirdly and finally, we'll ask, so what does that have to do with our lives today in the 21st century in Sierra Madre? And so let's, number one, let's ask the question, who are the rulers and authorities? Look back at the text again. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities. So there's this puzzle in the New Testament regarding the identity of the rulers and authorities. Because on the one hand, there is a a set of texts, like a body of Bible passages that speak of rulers and authorities to describe earthly or political powers and rulers and authorities. Governors and uh, Caesar, uh, these are rulers and authorities. And so, for example, in Romans chapter 13, it puts it like this, obey the rulers and those who have authority over you. Only God can give authority to anyone, and he puts these rulers in their places of power. And so here, the Bible is naming a reality in our existence that, of course, there are rulers and authorities who exert power over our lives. And very often, the rulers and authorities and their power transcends simply the individuals who hold their positions. And it extends to entire branches in uh, corporations and nations. Uh, it, it extends to the judicial branch and the executive branch and the legislative branch. And in our country, there is power and authority vested in each one of those branches. And the purpose is to exert power in a way that would serve human beings. And there's power and there's authority in corporations. You know, they have rule and authority uh, that they exert. You think about the power of corporate marketers in our lives and the incessant marketing. They're exerting some power over us. And you think even if you work in a company, there is actually kind of a spirit or an ethos or kind of a power in that company that shapes and forms you. I don't know if you've had this experience of walking into one grocery store and the whole feel in the place it feels hospitable and welcoming, and all of the cashiers are nice and sweet. And then you walk into another place, and it seems like everyone is cold. It seems like there's an entirely different spirit in that place. And, uh, and that, that, that spirit of the place exerts some effect on the lives of the employees because it has power. And so there's rulers, there's authorities. You think about families. You know, there, there is a power that is exerted over your life out of the family system you grew up in. You know, uh, in the Swanson family, uh, you know, my life is affected by, of course, my wife as an individual and each one of my daughters as individuals. But, you know, there is a, there's a Swanson family ethos that has a power in shaping uh, the lives of my kids for good or for ill, right? Hopefully mostly for good, Amen. So there there are powers and rulers on earth that exert some power in our life to change and shape and mold us and the societies around us and our families and our homes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the Bible acknowledges that it talks about rulers and authorities and places of power. But, you know, then there's a second set of texts that talk about heavenly or spiritual rulers or authorities, And so uh, Ephesians uh, 6 puts it like this, For we struggle not simply against flesh and blood, but get this, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So here now it's talking about a different kind of power and authority, something that is transcendent, that is immaterial, that is invisible to the naked eye, and that is heavenly, that's spiritual. And he says this has also a power and authority exerted in our reality that we inhabit in the world. And so there's this body of text that on the one hand talks about earthly and political rulers and places of power where power is exercised and has an effect on human life. And then there's a body of texts that talk about spiritual or heavenly power and authority. And then there's a third set of texts that talk about the intersection of these two places where power is exercised, the heavenly hierarchies and powers and the earthly hierarchies and powers. And so, for example, probably the the place par excellence that demonstrates the intersection of earthly rule and power and these spiritual, fallen, dark powers that are at work in the world is in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus, at one point in the Gospel of Luke, says this to those who want to crucify him. He says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, he's speaking here, by the way, to the rulers and the authorities in the religious realm. These are people who had religious power and religious authority on earth. But then he says this, but this is your hour to these rulers and authorities who want to lay hands on him. And he says, and the hour of the power of darkness. And so do you see what he's describing here? He's saying, look, you religious rulers and authorities are going to exert your power and your influence to have me taken and brought before the religious court where he's, uh, where he's tried. And then the religious leaders take him and have him sent over to the courts of Rome under the jurisprudence of Pilate, where he's tried underneath their rule and their authority. But Jesus indicates that there is another rule and authority, the the rule and the authority of the powers of darkness that are colluding together, that are collaborating together with these rulers in order to do their worst to Jesus. It's interesting, there's other passages in the New Testament that, again, refer to the rulers and authorities who put Jesus to the cross. And in some of those texts, the direct referent is to Herod and Pilate or to Caiaphas and the religious leaders in the Sanhedrin. But in other passages, it's a referent to these dark spiritual powers that colluded to put Jesus on the cross. And so, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it puts it like this. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And it's interesting, there's some ambiguity as to which rulers of the age put Jesus on the cross. And I think the implication of the text is is that it's a collusion between the earthly powers, the governor... uh, Pilate, the religious leaders, and these dark spiritual powers that co-opted, that colluded together with them to put Jesus on the cross. Now, if I could think about an illustration to kind of illustrate, I think what the, what the Bible is teaching at this point, uh, what came to my mind was *The Lord of the Rings*. When the the company who is tasked with the job of destroying the Ring of Power in the fires of Mount Doom uh, are on their way on their long journey to Mount Doom, and on their way they have to try to scale the mountain called Kah- Kahadras. And as they're trying to climb up this mountain, uh, this, this tremendous snowstorm comes in and they're battling all the elements and the earth is shaking. And and it's just, it, the weather is just so terrible and it gets worse and worse and worse. And then all of a sudden it kind of occurs to the company that there is something more going on here than just bad weather. And then the, the, the camera, you know, cuts to another scene and you see... Uh, Lord Sauron, who is doing all of his black magic in order to get the weather to do the thing that it's doing. And so you have this collusion together between kind of like uh, these earthly realities and these uh, magical heavenly powers that are at work. And I think there's something of that happening in the story of the crucifixion, but it's not just the story of the crucifixion where we see these dark powers at work, Colluding together, collaborating together, co-opting the power structures in our world, whether it be the power of a family system or the power of a corporation or a nation or a legislative branch or judicial branch or executive branch or whatever. Uh, You see this according to the New Testament all the time. This is the reality we inhabit. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers, against principalities, against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. Now, don't misunderstand me. You might be at this point saying, Josh, what exactly are you saying? That there are some little red demons running around with red capes and little horns and pitchforks uh, walking over to people making collusions and alliances with them? And of course, I'm not trying to say that there was a knowing alliance between the rulers and power structures in our world with the powers of darkness. It is an unknowing alliance. You know, I was a child of the 80s and growing up in the 80s, I don't know if you remember this, but there were all these metal bands, these heavy metal bands that supposedly were satanic. You know, there was uh, uh, ACDC and uh, bands like this. And part of their shtick was that they supposedly had made some pact with the devil, you know, and uh, is that what he's talking about here, that there is some pact that people make with the devil, and then out of that pact, they kind of exert some extra supernatural uh, influence over our world, and that's not what I'm saying. Uh, It's interesting, in the New Testament, what what were the real forces that put Jesus on the cross? Why did Pilate have an a completely just and righteous man, a guy who he knew full well was not guilty and was not deserving death. Why did Pilate have him put on the cross? Not because he had made a knowing alliance with the devil, but because Pilate had surrendered himself to his desire to retain power over the city of Jerusalem. And that desire for power exerted a control over him so that he was willing to do whatever it took to retain his power. Why did Judas betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? It wasn't because he sat down in a Zoom meeting with the demons and made some alliance with them. It was because he came underneath a power of greed and he surrendered himself to have money more than anything else. And that that power that he surrendered himself to took advantage over his life and it exerted a control over him. Why did the religious leaders betray Jesus? It wasn't because, again, they had made some alliance with the devil. It was because they had given themselves over to the dark power of jealousy. And out of jealousy, they had Jesus tried and put on the cross. And I think what the New Testament is teaching us is that when we give ourselves over to dark powers, dark forces, the, the, the power of greed or lust or anger or jealousy or power, and we surrender ourselves, and we give these things power, it can exert a strength over our lives, and we start to lose control. Now, don't, again, misunderstand me. I'm not saying that all human evil is attributable to the devil, you know, as in the devil made me do it, you know. You know, the the Bible is very complex when it talks about the evil and darkness in our world, and it is multi-layered. And of course, there is a human dimension. And the Bible talks about this earlier in, in, in Colossians. It talks about human transgressions. This is crossing over the law of God to love our neighbor as ourselves and to love God with all of our heart and soul. And we willfully often cross that line and we bear responsibility for our action. We said this last week. It's what it means to be made in the image of God and have dignity and worth That We are held responsible for our actions. But what I am saying is that there are times and places where individuals, where corporations and nations and family systems come underneath the power of something greater than themselves that is dark and it leads to dehumanization and destruction within that family or within that nation or within that corporation or within that industry. I am saying that there are spiritual forces wreaking havoc in and through governments and nations and family systems and ideologies. And that when you see genocide and ethnic cleansing and child slavery, or when you study history and you learn about a man who performs experiments on babies in a concentration camp and then goes home for a nice dinner with his children— or families who leave church in the deep South back in the Jim Crow era to enjoy a local lynching, or when you read about Russians back after the Bolshevik Revolution, abandoning all truth and justice to throw innocent people in jail and to have them tortured for years and years and years of their life. I'm saying that when you see that kind of darkness and evil, there is something darker and something more sinister going on. And I think that's what Paul is talking about when he talks about these rulers and authorities. These are not simply tempters and teasers that are running around, you know, um, uh, dancing on the hood of our cars with their red capes. I don't even know why I said that. Why would they dance on the hood of their cars with their red capes and their pitchforks? That's to trivialize what the Bible talks about in its imagination about the world we inhabit. What the Bible says is that there is both human evil There is human wrongdoing, but there are also transcendent, immaterial, invisible, spiritual powers of darkness that are at work, colluding together with, in collaboration with, systems of power within our world today. That's the claim of scripture. Now, I know that some of you, you know, one one way you could respond to this is like, that just sounds strange. (laughs) And it sounds primitive and maybe regressive. You know, didn't we abandon that a long time ago when, uh, you know, after the enlightenment? You know, but another way you could respond to that is you could say, perhaps here from these ancient pre-modern voices, we discover wisdom and truth and insight for grappling with reality in this world as we experience it. In a book called The Death of Satan, Columbia professor Andrew Delbanco, who is not a a Christian himself, he's a secular uh, uh, um, humanist, but he wrote this. He says, a gulf has opened in our culture, a gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. A gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of rank evil and our intellectual resources to cope with it. We have jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. We don't believe in it. In fact, we don't even like to use the word evil because it implies moral absolutes and value judgments. And so we use medical terms. We talk about dysfunction. We talk about pathology. We don't use moral terminology. But then he says this, as the 20th century has gone on, it has gotten harder and harder to say that Holocaust and ethnic cleansing and serial killing is just bad psychological and sociological adjustments. And just think about this for a moment. You know, whenever there is some horrendous tragedy that happens in our nation and we're forced to confront evil, just notice how frantic and quick everyone is to explain why it happened. You know, a teenager goes into a building and shoots it up. And within an hour of the coverage, we're calling up his psychiatrist. And we find out that he got off his medication. And we study social media and find out that he was a loner and didn't have many friends. And then we study his family history. And we find out that his dad left him when he was three. And we go through all of these different things and all the factors that led to this horrendous evil. But even after we've gone through all of the factors, none of us stands back and says, well... It just had to happen. It makes sense. Now, even when all of that is found out, we find ourselves scratching our hands and saying, but how? But why? And that is because evil as we experience it is always more than the sum of its parts. And that's what it means to believe in demons and powers in the spiritual world. It means that evil is always more than the sum of its parts. There is something mysterious going on that cannot be explained away. And that doesn't mean that we dismiss the insights of psychology or biology or chemistry or family behavior studies. All, all that, of course, comes into play. You know, we're holistic creatures, The point is, is that even after we add all of those things up, there is always a remainder. And the language I think that the Bible uses to get at this transcendent evil that accounts for the remainder are rulers and authorities, principalities and powers. But now I want you to turn back to the text. I want you to see uh, why Paul is even talking to us about the rulers and authorities. He's telling us about them because he wants us to see that Christ came through the cross to defeat the rulers and authorities. Look again back at at verse 15. It says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So we talked already about the second half of the verse where it talks about Jesus uh, exposing uh, the rulers and authorities to open shame and triumphing over them, that that language was used of a general who would expose uh, the defeated army to open shame as they were trailing behind him as he went on his victory parade into the city. But notice it doesn't just say that he entered into this parade, this victory parade over the rulers and authorities, it says that he, in our text, uh, it says he disarmed him. Uh, Another way in which that can be translated is that he stripped the rulers and authorities. Or another way in some of your Bibles it translates it is that he he stripped himself of the rulers and authorities. And this phrase has caused commentators some confusion. Because they've wondered, well, what is he exactly saying here? And almost everyone says that that the the Greek, the the most faithful proper translation is to say that God in Christ stripped Himself, like stripping oneself of dirty ragged clothing. Uh, Christ stripped Himself of the powers and authorities. What does that mean? <laughs> I mean, all of this language is actually rather strange because again, think about stripping and exposing to open shame and triumphing over a human being. If there was ever a form of execution in the ancient world where somebody could be stripped and exposed to open shame and be shown that you were being triumphed over them, it was the cross. In the ancient world, uh, the one who would be, crucified would be stripped naked and they would be hung up and publicly exposed and humiliated before everyone. And they would be mocked and they would be spit upon. And it would be a way of the government saying to everyone, this is what happens when somebody defies our authority. We triumph over them. We pin them to the cross like an insect on a specimen board and we hang them up for all to see. And the irony of ironies is that Paul says it is in this very moment when Christ is stripped, when Christ is being exposed to shame, when Christ is being triumphed over by the powers of Rome, that God actually was in Christ exerting a great victory over all of the powers of darkness. He was stripping them. He was exposing them and he was triumphing over them. And we think, well, how on earth could such a defeat be a victory in the eyes of the Apostle Paul? And I think one way to answer that question is to look at some of our favorite stories. You know, you think for a moment with me about uh, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. You know, C.S. Lewis's lovely little story for kids. And in that story, how is it that the lion Aslan defeats the white witch, and ends up freeing for himself uh, Peter, who has been uh, enslaved to the white witch's power. Or it wasn't Peter, it was Edmund. I was just checking to see if you're all still awake. And nobody called it out, so you're all not awake. Shame on you. But how was it that Aslan defeated the witch? It was through an act of his own self-giving love. And you know, how was it that Harry Potter was able to defeat Lord Voldemort? It was through an act of self-giving love. And how was it that Iron Man was able to defeat Thanos? It was through an act of self-giving love. And I think all of these stories are communicating something to us that is told to us in the gospel. And it's this, that at the heart of the universe is love. There is a power At the heart of the universe, the power of God and God's love that called all things in it to exist into being. The reality of all realities is God himself and God's eternal love that called all things into being. Evil and all of the darkness in the world in comparison to God's reality and God's love is ultimately nothingness. And ultimately evil itself will completely go away. It will be banished from God's creation as the nothingness that it always was. The true stuff of life, the true reality at the heart of the universe is self-giving, generous, sacrificial love. This is the powerful stuff. And the power that ultimately defeated the darkness that co-ops and colludes with the power structures in our world to wreak havoc in our lives, the power that defeats that darkness is the power of God's own generous, sacrificial, self-giving love on full display when Christ was stripped and when he was humiliated and when he gave his life for the world. Here, God was triumphing over the powers of darkness. And so Paul says, look, the cross is a great victory over darkness. The darkness that exists in the world through the rulers and the authorities, the principalities and powers. Now, our last question I just want to hit in closing is this. In light of this reality, what am I supposed to do? You know, what am I supposed to do with this reality that there are rulers and authorities that evil is much more complicated and complex than we could have imagined, and that God in Christ, through his own self-giving love, has defeated those dark powers. How should that affect and change our lives this week? And let me just suggest three simple ways this can direct our lives this week. Number 1 this reality this truth that we've looked at tonight number 1 helps us diagnose the true problems in our world you know oftentimes we get too simplistic and naive in our in our desire to understand what's really going on in our lives in our marriages in our cities in our communities in our world but the Bible says there is a complicated world of both human and spiritual darkness at work and at play. And if it's true that as Paul said, we wrestle not simply against earthly powers and authorities, but we wrestle against spiritual powers in dark places, then it means that you and I on our own are in way over our heads. I mean, that was one thing I was hit with this week as I was thinking about this. Story. I thought uh, we are in over our heads. And so we need to be people of great dependence who get down on our knees. You know, this battle is fought in dependence upon God. This last week I was uh, at the Union Rescue Mission and we were given a tour uh, by Tim Peters and then one of his colleagues over there uh, who runs, he's basically, he's the Executive Director of Philanthropy at the Union Rescue Mission. And he was talking to us about the difficulties that they faced in order to have certain structures built to try to fight the dark grip of homelessness that is just destroying downtown LA. And they're in deep in this battle. And he said at one point, he said there is just something bigger going on here than simply uh, the fights that they were having with the city about getting permitting and all this stuff. He said there's something coming against us. And in light of that reality, we need to be people of prayer who depend upon God, who recognize that the solution to our problems, yes, it involves all kinds of of things. There might be medical diagnoses because of biological and, and, and physiological realities. There might be a therapeutic, uh, responses uh, that we need to take. We need to go to counseling, but we also need to recognize that there is a spiritual dimension to our lives. And so we need to be people of prayer, people who depend upon God and his victory in Jesus Christ over these dark powers. But number two, it not only helps us with a diagnosis. Secondly, it helps us with direction. It helps us with direction on the core virtues that are necessary to do battle against real darkness in our world and the true path that Jesus teaches us when we get involved in the midst of darkness, it's a path of cross-shaped self-giving love that we reenact that we've seen in Jesus. As Jesus has given himself away for the sake of the world, so too we need to engage in generous, sacrificial, self-giving love as we engage in doing battle. We can't use the weapons of this world uh, we cannot look around at our culture and simply uh, send mean tweets or texts or posts on social media. Uh, we can't be people who distribute uh, false narratives about other people. Uh, we can't do the stuff that other people around us are doing in this battle. We have got to embrace the way of Jesus in when we face all kinds of darkness around us. So number one, it gives us a diagnosis. Number two, it gives us direction. But number three, and finally, this gives us hope. You know, the victory that Jesus won was an already not yet victory. You know, uh, back in World War II, there was D-Day and there was V-Day. And on D-Day, when the troops stormed the beaches of Normandy, that was the decisive moment in the battle in World War II. And on that day, Ultimately, the battle had been won. The victory had been enacted because of their great victory on that day. But they had to wait some time until V-Day when ultimately uh, hostilities ceased. And so too, right now, there has been great uh, D-Day for the church, and it's the cross and resurrection of Jesus. But we wait for V-Day when Jesus Christ returns and all hostilities cease. But in the meantime, we work with sacrificial love for the sake of our neighbors battling the darkness on our knees in prayer with hope. Because we know that though, uh, as Dr. King said, the moral arc of the universe is long, it bends towards justice. Ultimately, Christ's eternal kingdom will be established in this world and the powers of darkness will be taken away and on that day there will be no more tears or crying or pain for the former things. All of the darkness is passed away because through Jesus Christ, God has made all things new. And so we work together on our knees with hope because of God's victory in Jesus Christ.